So the Marx Brothers came out of that world, were very successful in radio and movies, and then had like a rebirth with television, because television was essentially vaudeville. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. What's the secret of comedy? I have it here somewhere. Hmm. Seems to be timing. Anyway, we'll talk vintage comedy with the authors of two books about comedians. One you probably know little about, though he knew everybody and was on the scene of everything, Henry Pathé Lerman. And then the story of four, sometimes five, eventually just three comedians who you do know, and their long careers on stages before they became famous as the Marx Brothers. But before all that, we'll get a report from this year's Pordenone Silent Film Festival. So thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. It tells you how in the show post at nitrateville.com, where you'll find links for all these books. And do you know I haven't stopped talking since you got here? I must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. Il Giornate del Cinema Muto, the festival of silent film held every fall in Pordenone, Italy, near Venice, is the silent film event in the world, where archivists and academics put on rigorously curated programs of rare films that have led to numerous rediscoveries. Nitrateville member Lockie Heiss has been going since 1994, and before he talks about what he saw at this year's festival, I asked him to start by telling us what the atmosphere of the festival is like. I think people come there for a real serious look at, uh, at movies that they may never get a chance to see again. Um, I think the people who are, um, who are archivists and professionals, you know, take a little different look and they're there for, for a business, for, for networking. They'll see some of the movies and then they'll spend the rest of the day sitting, uh, at a, you know, for coffee, uh, and, and then beautiful restaurants that are very close to the theater. So, I think after you've been to two or three festivals, like certainly I have, you, you tend to get more of a, of a completist kind of, you know, you just want to see everything because um, there's so much unusual stuff up there. And um, so that you, you'll see that it, it's, um, it's really a small festival. I think there's um, less than 800 people altogether. I, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, yeah, that that's not a lot of people for, for a big festival. So it, it tends to be sort of a family um, uh situation after a while you, you sort of know everybody there's a joke about that is that, you know if you've come once or come a second time you're you're hooked and there's some huge truth to that so what hooked you i'm there because of david shepherd and i took a class from him so we became friends and a couple of years after that he um did something very sneaky i, I was going to europe for other reasons uh but he he knew that and he said um, there's something very important you can do for me. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be giving them a, a, 
16 millimeter reel of film comedy. They were doing a, a comedy series that year of American uh, uh, lesser known comics. And he said, I want to, to, to give it to you to take there. And this is really important. Uh, and while you're there, you can be the, the Blackhawk representative, uh, my <laughs> representative there. So um, if he had just said something like, Lockheed, uh, do you want to just go, you know, there's a festival I think you'd really enjoy. Why don't you uh, think about going? I, I would have come up with five reasons not to go. But of course, he, he set it up that way. So I sort of had to go, right? Uh, <laughs> and there were a lot of other people from America there. It was a big event. Bill Everson was there, Leonard Malton. And I saw that this was an important thing for, for people who love old movies. What really stood out for you at this year's festival? So for me, it was a let's catch up with the Masterpieces Week at uh, Portanoni this year. Uh, and the reasons were probably several for this. Uh, there were some uh, Japanese films that were supposed to, uh, to be uh, there and they were going through a uh, restoration and they just weren't ready in time. So there were some gaps in the schedule and uh, there was uh, also maybe Jay Weisberg, the, the director of the festival just looked at the program and there were some, just some gaps of great films that had never been on there. Uh, so there were, there were four films that stood out from, from everybody else. And, and they probably would be familiar to, to people listening to this. And uh, the, the first film is the crowd uh, King Ryder's film from 1928. And that's my, my favorite American silent film. I mean, I could argue that it's the greatest silent film. Um, but certainly, uh, uh, to me, it's the, it's the summation of, of what a silent film can do right at the end of the silent film era. So the crowd was there. And then a student prince in old Heidelberg, the, uh, the Lubitsch film from 27, which is just a, a wonderful film uh, and very sad, remorseful kind of a um, remembrance of things past. It, there's a lot going on in that movie. It's typical Lubitsch. It's, it's, um, it seems very superficial. It's very deep. Uh, I, it, was, it was a wonderful film. And then a film that um, probably uh, people listening to this are not familiar with, and that's a Victor Schustrom film, Love is Crucible, from 1922, I think that was sort of the, um, not a surprise, but that was the, uh, the, the film you want to come go to see in, in a perfect um, situation with a, you know, with a, with a great uh, musical accompaniment. And uh, Love's Crucible, it's, it's as good as any other Schuster film. These films are all great. And, um, you know, why is it isn't better known? I think, I think Schuster's problem is that all of his films are so good, or most of them, that they sort of compete with each other. Uh, and finally, the, the fourth film on this top of the list would be um, uh, the, the French avant-garde film uh, Menil Montant by, uh, by Dmitry uh, Kurzanov. And uh, that has gotten a lot of play in, uh, in, in art circles or art theaters, and I think it deservedly so. It's just a, um, a fantastic 40-minute uh, um, uh, uh, avant-garde film. So those are the four biggies, and then there was um, after that came the surprises. So what else did you go to? Did you go to any of the Japanese films that they did have? I did. And um, the, the, they did get two of them this year, and they, they promises to get the four more next year. Uh, they'll, they'll be restored by then. Uh, the two Japanese films were, uh, I, I would put them in, in the discovery category. They were uh, both great. Uh, the first movie is called An Inn in Tokyo, 
And then that's 1935. Uh, as you know, the, the Japanese converted to, to uh, sound late. And so there's these um, films from 30 to 37, which are still silent. And uh, But anyway, I mean, in Tokyo, uh, was directed by Ozu. So uh, this was not a huge surprise. I, I, you know, the film's around, uh, but it's it's a wonderful film, an antecedent to neorealism. It has all kinds of uh, qualities similar to Bicycle Thieves. Um, you know, see this film. It's 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 really good. Uh, have, you, have you ever been able to I see I actually it? have I know seen Ozu. it. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. it's interesting that his... Uh, he said his inspiration for it, although it certainly suggests like Bicycle Thief to us, his inspiration was the champ because it's that central relationship yeah. of the, the dad and the and the boy kind of on the outs of society. Uh, although you certainly don't see it being the kind of hard sell thing that uh, Wallace Beery is. So. It's not melodramatic. It's not over the top. It's... Uh... Ozu, Ozu settled, it, settled it all down. This is a movie that's very particular about uh, how hard it is for a father to raise uh, children if he's in a poverty situation, and uh, the movie really investigates that. So um, so it has a little bit of the champ in it, for sure, because the father wants to, the, the, to look good to the boy. Yeah. And it's just so hard because he's just so pummeled by, by all kinds of different bad things happening to him. It's a it's a it's a great film, and uh, um, there's a of course no dialogue, but the titles, and anybody uh, who's watching at this point has to laugh because the two boys, the, the the father has two sons, and they're they're homeless, they're looking for work, and the boys are arguing about who's stronger, tiger or lions, and if you've ever been with kids, that that will yeah boys in particular that that that's a universal question, right? Tigers or lions? Yeah. <laughs> and finally, one of the boys shrugs and says, "Well, King Kong could 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 beat up any of them." And the whole audience laughs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is 1935, and Japan has seen King Kong, so right. it tells you how how pervasive. The other the other movie, which I liked really as well, just as good, is called The Island Girl, made in 1933 by a director I'd never heard of before, named Hotai Nomura. And this was a revelation to me. I, I hope more of his films are around because this is just a very, um, it's, a, it's a subtle but very uh, beautiful story of a young man who's sad and depressed because of a breakup uh, in a relationship. And he comes to an island uh, to kind of get away and perhaps even think of committing suicide. He meets a, a, a girl and a family there who gives him kind of another set of values. It's a, it's a city mouse and the island mouse who get together. Well, she's having her own problems. Uh, so there's this little kind of reciprocal uh, exchange between the two, which um, which is Ozu-like work territory, but it has sort of a more of a melodramatic quality. So Ozu meets Douglas Sirk. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> um, and so it's called Island Girl by Nomura. And uh, well, let's just cross our fingers that more of Hotei uh, Hotei Nomura's films are around because if they're as good as this, this is a, this is as good as uh, you know some of Ozu and and, and Narusa and, and you know some of these other directors that don't get much uh, attention here. There was the premiere of a piece of a Louise Brooks film. What was that? So that movie is called Now We're in the Air, 1927, and it's a service comedy. Uh, and you're right, Brooks is only in well, it's a it's a piece of the film. 
oh, I'd say about 15 minutes long, and she's in about five minutes of it. And I know that I, I was I'd written about this film saying, uh, you know, come watch uh, Louise Brooks before she's Brooks. I just had to, to ditch that uh, that lead line because uh, she's uh, Brooks all the way. I mean, gee, she's she uh, she's in a shot, and and the whole audience is looking at her. There's no no nobody else matters in the shot. And uh, this is obviously before she went to Germany, so she's got it even back then. And uh, uh, the night that they showed that film, uh, uh, the line to get into the theater was you know like around the block and down to down to the to the river so um, <laughs> uh, if i were the festival i would have called this the uh, uh the louise brooks you know 2017 festival starring louise brooks and uh, had her face and and uh, pictures of her you know like on every uh, every block um even five minutes of her was was i have to say was was you know if you didn't quite remember the rest of the uh not you the rest of the movie was forgettable but I'm not sure what the rest of the evening was. So, uh, <laughs> no, and it, it wasn't like she was doing anything magical. She was just being there, up there. But I think that uh, afterward, we were talking about how uh, everybody else was acting, and she had this sort of more of a modern kind of quality of just being present. And and by doing that, she just um, looked different than everybody, besides being uh, obviously beautiful. Yeah, but there was more. There's more going on there, and um, and that that five minutes, it, it's worth it. Try and see it, see it in a big theater if at all possible. be links to a PDF of the Pordenone catalog, and eventually to Lockie Heiss's reviews of the films he saw at the 2017 festival, in the show post at nitreville.com. Anybody who loves early film almost certainly came to it through comedy, the gateway drug for all other genres. And probably through books about comedy, too. There are lots of books on Chaplin and Keaton and Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers and so on. So you might think that this is well-plowed ground. But in this episode, we're talking to the authors of two books, two thick, well-researched books, about subjects on the edges of what's familiar about vintage comedy. First, Henry Pathé Lerman is a Rosencrantzer Guildenstern of silent comedy, on the edges of everything, from the beginnings of Max Sennett's career, to directing Charlie Chaplin's very first film, to playing a role in the Roscoe Arbuckle scandal. Thomas Reeder puts this long-dead figure back in the spotlight in his book Mr. Suicide, Henry Pathé Lerman, and the Birth of Silent Comedy. Henry Lehrman is uh, was a, a comedic genius. Uh, he was one of the architects of uh, the, the 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 slapstick style that became so predominant in the 19 teens. Uh, you know, unfortunately, his uh, achievements uh, are sorely underappreciated these days, and his reputation has been sullied over the years by uh, various self-serving uh, uh, autobiographies and uh, you know apocryphal tales that have been told about his. Uh, 
his uh, treatment of um, stunt people and so forth. So, uh, and very few of his films have survived. So he's just not recognized as uh, the significant contributor to a film that he was in the teens. I mean, he was huge in the teens. Uh, unfortunately, his uh, career tanked in the 20s, but uh, while he was up and uh, running, he was at the top of his field. Although he was on studio payrolls into the 40s, which is more than oh, he was. many yep. many people certainly were. So, Well, he was a survivor, uh, <laughs> a penniless survivor, it seemed, because he was always uh, uh, behind in his taxes and so forth. But uh, uh, yeah, he, he, he hung on in the industry right up to the very end. All right, so what got you so interested in him in particular? Well, this goes back over 35 years when I was a graduate student at NYU, and uh, William Everson was uh, my my instructor of choice. So I did uh, two uh, two research papers for him. One was on the Sterling uh, Film Company because that intrigued me because it was so short-lived and had – some talents involved, but it just uh, tanked after a little over a year. So that was uh, uh, Ford Sterling had his own company in the late teens, and Lehrman was the creative, yeah, it was, creative behind it, essentially. Yeah, it was actually 1914 into 1915. Uh, Ford Sterling and Henry Lehrman had both been with Max Sennett comedies, uh, but Lehrman wasn't uh, getting the getting the acknowledgement that he felt he should be receiving for all his contributions to the Keystone comedies. And he's arguably the architect behind the Keystone uh, style. Uh, Ford Sterling was the, one of their top comedians. So the two of them were lured away by Fred Balshafer, uh, who had a deal with Universal and Carl Lemley to create Sterling comedies. And Ford Sterling would be the star. Henry Lehrman would be the director. Lehrman left after just a few months to create he had another deal with uh, Carl Lemley to create his own studio, the uh, LKO comedies, the Lehrman knockout comedies. And this was uh, in direct competition to uh, Senate's Keystone. And uh, uh, Lehrman had his uh, star comedian, uh, Billy Ritchie, who was uh, the, uh, a Scotland-born uh, vaudeville comedian that had been in the U.S. for 10 years with the Fred Carnot Company and Gus Hill. And other comedians, uh, the initial stock company was uh, uh, Gertrude Selby and Henry Bergman. Henry Bergman, of course, went on to uh, work with Chaplin for many years, and that's that's how he's remembered. But uh, the LKO comedies lasted until uh, 1916 when the uh, Stern brothers took over and Lehrman moved on to Fox. Uh, he had a deal with William Fox to create comedies, and they created the Sunshine Comedy brand. And this was a major step up because uh, they had much more lavish budgets and much more time to uh, create the films. And these these were some of the uh, uh, quote-unquote masterpieces, if you will, of uh, Henry Lehrman's output. We kind of went into the middle of his career here, but let's go back to the very beginning. So he was a uh, Ukrainian, or I guess it's Ukraine now, it was probably what, Poland then, or the Austro-Hungarian? Uh, yeah, it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah, he was born in Sambor, which was in the Galatia district uh, in 1881, uh, was well-educated, and he emigrated to the United States in 1906 when he was 25. Despite being well-educated, he sort of he's one of those people who sort of kicked around and happened to find himself in the right place uh, for the career he would turn out to have, which was by a <laughs> when uh, yep. a couple of other young kids named uh, D.W. Griffith and Max Sennett were there. Lehrman was befriended by Sennett, and Sennett uh, encouraged him to uh, get work at 
Biograph. And Biograph was always looking for bit players and so forth. So uh, they roomed together along with uh, Del Henderson, who was uh, one of Biograph's uh, lead actors. And um, Senate was doing a lot of bit parts as well, but he really wanted to get into comedy production. When Senate was eventually given the opportunity to direct his comedies, uh, Lehrman was pretty much his idea man. Um, so they they worked kind of together on those biograph comedies. Uh, unfortunately, the, the the biograph comedies, or I shouldn't say unfortunately, but they differ from the uh, eventual Keystone comedies that Senate would produce because they had to adhere to uh, some guidelines and couldn't couldn't go too far off the deep end into the slapstick. Uh, without approval. Um, but eventually, uh, Senate was approached to, uh, by, uh, Adam Kessel and, uh, Charles Bauman to, uh, create his own comedy, uh, studio. And that became Keystone's comedies. And, uh, he took with him Mabel Normand and, um, Ford Sterling. And, uh, they made a few comedies in New York before relocating to the West Coast, and that's when Senate contacted Lehrman and said, come join me at uh, Keystone, and Lehrman became the other director. The two of them were directing side by side. The Senate, of course, was getting all the attention. Well, you talk about, in one point, uh, Bangville Police, which is actually a film people might have seen. It's pretty commonly around. Mm -hmm. um, and talk about how Lehrman really was a more sophisticated comedy director at that point than Senate seems to have been. Uh, the quote you offer here is, the visuals are striking, especially when compared to some of Senate's efforts from this period. Instead of the usual right-to-left or left-to-right movements of characters carried over from the stage, Lerman rarely settles for such routine staging when he can instead have characters move to or from the foreground and at a more visually interesting diagonal trajectory. And that's pretty good for, what, 1913 there? Yeah, well, yeah. I think when he was at Biograph, I think Lehrman was absorbing uh, a lot of Griffith's uh, technical approaches, uh, uh, technique in in his filmmaking uh, with the uh, fast editing and the cross-cutting and the uh, uh, interesting camera angles. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of Senate stuff uh, is kind of stage-bound looking. You know, people just move back and forth, and it's, it's visually unexciting, you know, aside from mayhem that's going on on the screen but uh Lehrman would use uh tight close-ups of actors which was kind of uh, atypical at the time uh he would have you know the action moving at diagonals coming from the background to the foreground um there's uh in one of his early lkos from 1914 uh, partners in crime uh where billy ritchie is facing off against uh, henry bergman and they're about to get into a fight and he cuts back and forth between the two actors as they slowly approach the camera. Bergman coming from the left, Richie coming from the right, until their faces both fill the screens and they're scowling at each other. I mean, it's it's very dramatic and uh, very funny. But uh, the Senate wasn't doing as much of that early on. And uh, of course, as you know, as he matured in his direction and he brought in other directors, uh, the Keystone comedies picked up. But I think. Uh, and I'm sure some people will give me an argument on this, but I think Lehrman was a, a visually visually exciting uh, director, and uh, he really knew how to stage a scene and uh, set it up for maximum impact. Well, yeah, I usually think of you know so many of those Senates. Large guy picks up brick, cut to <laughs> brick flying through air, cut to brick hits small guy in head, and it's 
there you know those things could have been filmed six months apart they just feel so disparate and what you're talking about with Lerman sounds like the films have a more natural flow um, and what feels more contemporary, certainly to us. Yeah, but I don't want to oversell it. I mean, Lerman did some of that stuff, too. I mean, it's, uh, you know, they were in the early learning stages and uh, his uh, direction certainly uh, picked up over the years, uh, you know. When he finally got to Fox Sunshine and his own Henry Lehrman comedies, uh, that, that was the uh, pinnacle of his uh, – uh, the films that he would direct. But he would also supervise and provide the ideas to his, his own directors and, and kind of screen everything that his directors were doing and sit in with them while they cut the films. Uh, so he had a very uh, uh, hand in most everything that left his uh, studios. Yeah, and you talk about uh, – and there's the – one of the intros to the book talks about this a lot, too, is that, I mean, really the characteristics of Lehrman's filmmaking are a great deal of violence. You know, the more <laughs> violence, the better. And very rapid cutting. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it really is the epitome of the slam-bang slapstick that just won't stop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some people would uh, say that you know maybe he uh, was more style than substance in terms of uh, the the stories being told, but uh, uh, you know we don't have unfortunately we don't have enough surviving films to to fully um, uh, appreciate his output and be able to analyze it. He's there helping direct uh, Roscoe Arbuckle the moment he arrives at Senate. He literally directs Chaplin's first couple of films later at LKO. I mean he's developing people. Um, both in front of the camera talent, like Raymond Griffith, behind the camera talent, like uh, Harry Edwards and Jack White, who would go on to do Harry Langdon and the Three Stooges and people like that. So And, and Norman Tarog also. And Norman Tarog, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, the big ones in particular. I mean, Chaplin, what do you think was the influence of Lehrman on Chaplin's career? Well, I mean, Chaplin obviously had a lot of uh, talent coming into this. He had been with, uh, been on stage since he was, I think, five, and had been with Fred Carnot for a few years, uh, and came over to the U.S. with Carnot. What was his influence? Well, he introduced Chaplin to the whole art of filmmaking. I mean, Chaplin just didn't have a clue what was going on. He was used to doing things in a linear fashion on the stage and developing gags. Well, there wasn't really time for that in uh, filmmaking. Uh, you know in the uh, slam-bang approach of getting films out the door at Keystone. And film is obviously shot out of sequence, which totally baffled Chaplin. But Chaplin learned the, uh, the, the, the art of filmmaking and uh, also uh, learned to act for the, uh, for the camera and not for the audience uh, in, a, you know, in a vaudeville hall or a music hall. Uh, but it was the, uh, the second released film... Uh, Kid Auto Races at Venice, which was filmed in the middle of uh, the filming of uh, Mabel's Strange Predicament, but was released before it. Uh, that's where uh, Chaplin uh, adopted the, 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 the tramp outfit and um, created the character that we've come to know today. And that, that character was refined, obviously, over the years, but uh, it was there up and running in his second, second and third film. And uh, it's, you know, it's unclear what sort of influence Lehrman had, if any, on the creation of that outfit and character. But I'd like to think in some fashion or other, he helped uh, helped uh, create the character and helped mold Chaplin into that character. Well, you do give one example, which is apparently Chaplin did 
just a ton of business in one scene and then was shocked to see that Lehrman had cut most of it out. Yeah. And you you know, you say that basically Lehrman was teaching him, you know, you don't you don't have to you don't have to work everything to death in one movie. You're going to you're going to make a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah, and, save it for the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and Chaplin uh, Chaplin's autobiography it was called my autobiography um you know he kind of diminishes uh, Lehrman's contributions and talents um and it's it's you know Chaplin's autobiography is very self-serving and you know Chaplin obviously had a huge ego uh an example of that is his uh, his beloved cinematographer Raleigh Tothero who was with Chaplin for over 30 years doesn't even uh warrant a mention in his autobiography. Uh, so I think part of Lehrman's um, uh, lackluster reputation is due in no small part to uh, Chaplin's autobiography, where Chaplin was rather dismissive of him and uh, just didn't give, give credit where credit was due. And if you read any any biography of Chaplin that's been written since uh, Chaplin's autobiography, uh, Chaplin's words about Lehrman have been parroted, you know, to death, you know, in every every subsequent uh, biography because these people took Chaplin's word for it. But uh, in in point of fact, Chaplin and Lehrman were actually uh, pretty good buddies uh, through the teens. Uh, there's you know numerous accounts of them att- attending nightclubs and parties together on different committees together. Uh, Mary Pickford tells a you know a cute story about the two of them frolicking on the beach and doing imitations of actors and actresses. Uh, and when Lehrman created his Henry Lehrman comedies in the late teens, uh, Chaplin came over and spent an afternoon with him touring the studio and uh, talking about old times. So I think there there was a closer relationship there than we've been led to believe over the years. Now, another thing that really hurt Lehrman's reputation is that he's been painted as a bad guy in the uh, Roscoe Arbuckle, Virginia Rap scandal. Yeah. He, he, we're not, again, we're not quite sure what his relationship with Virginia Rap is, but you, <laughs> you make a good argument that it was, it was pretty sincere and they were involved with each other. And when she died, he, you know, just led off to the press about, you know, how it took a monster like, Roscoe Arbuckle to kill her and and things like that. You know, he's been portrayed as being sort of self-serving, publicity-seeking, as so many people were at the time. What? How do you read that? Well, you have to understand that uh, Virginia Rappe, the whole scandal took place on the West Coast, and Lehrman was across the country in New York uh, making a film with Owen Moore at the time. And uh, so he was only given some limited information uh, about what had happened, and the uh, the information was uh, kind of skewed into building up uh, Arbuckle as a mad rapist or whatever. Uh, so Lehrman's uh, you know seat of the pants reaction is is pretty understandable. If I found that my best friend had uh, was led to believe that he had raped and murdered my fiance, if if they were indeed engaged, I'd be pretty upset too. Um, but that not only did that interview come across as kind of self-serving, but he also uh, managed to uh, uh, damn the industry as a whole, which uh, didn't serve him well uh, in the years to come. Um, you know, Arbuckle uh, 
even though Arbuckle was exonerated of uh, any wrongdoing after three trials, um, his films were unreleasable, and Paramount had, I think, five of his features sitting on the shelf waiting to go that they couldn't release. So, um, you know, Lehrman helped to contribute to uh, to uh, Arbuckle's downfall in a small way. Yeah, so as, as we said, he, you know, continues along through the 20s, you know, has a decent career uh, as sort of a functionary, particularly at Fox. Um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of uh, otherworldly almost to see him writing story notes for Daryl Zanuck on things like Johnny Apollo or How Green Was My <laughs> Valley. You know, yeah, here's, here's yeah. this, this figure from the days of painted on handlebar mustaches and hitting each other with sledgehammers who's you know evaluating the labor issues and how green was my valley for fox well uh, at that at that point he had been in the industry for a while and he had matured and uh, um, you know i guess he saw the writing on the wall he was obviously a very educated individual as some of his uh, writings about you know some of his analyses of the uh, films uh, demonstrate and his advice was uh, would be on a occasion taken uh, the movie tailspin uh, with Alice Fay is one one a good example where he writes out all sorts of uh, uh, ideas for making the climax more exciting and if you view the movie all those ideas have been implemented out of what survives which as you say the survival record is not great i mean if you wanted to tell people here's here's shows you what henry lehrman was capable of what would you point to what what's relatively easy to see that's good uh, well, relatively easy to see is uh, kind of an issue because uh, a number of his films uh, only survive in a single copy that are held by archives. So commercially released films, there are virtually none. Uh, Live Wires and Love Sparks, which was a uh, an LKO comedy from, I think it was 1915, was on the uh, Slapstick Encyclopedia set that was released uh, maybe 15 years ago, but that's out of print, I believe. Uh, his films for Keystone are well represented because of Chaplin and the Keystone connection. So those are well represented, but, you know, probably not the best examples of his work. Uh, you know, Bangville Police is uh, amusing. You know, the early Chaplin films are uh, amusing. Uh, but if you want to go to archives to view uh, – you know, some of the surviving films, uh, they're far better examples. Uh, the three real film that he did in, uh, 1915 or 16, I think for LKO called Silk Hose and High Pressure, which stars Billy Ritchie, um, is an excellent comedy. The, the print of that, and maybe it's the only print is held by the, uh, Library of Congress down in Washington. Um, that, uh, it's, it's, it's an excellent comedy and the second reel pretty much uh, is a recreation of the Fred Carno uh, musical comedy, uh, A Night in a Musical, I think it was called. And uh, so it's it's interesting uh, on a historical level as well for that. Uh, Chaplin went ahead and made his own version of that. I think it was called A Night in a Musical uh, that was released a week or two after uh, uh, Lehrman's version. Uh, other LKOs that are really funny, I love uh, Sin on the Sabbath, which has Billy Ritchie and uh, Gene Rogers just uh, getting inebriated on uh, uh, in the back room of a, uh, a drugstore. Uh, later films uh, for his Henry Lehrman comedies, a, a Twilight Baby survives at Museum of Modern Art. That stars uh, Lloyd Hamilton and uh, Virginia Rappé. 
and uh, Billy Ritchie, unrecognizable behind a big bushy mustache, not looking like the Billy Ritchie character that we usually associate with Ritchie. Uh, his musical Sneeze from uh, 1919, I think it was. That was a sunshine comedy. That's very funny. That stars Lloyd Hamilton. Uh, but those are, you know, just random examples, but because there are only random examples uh, floating around out there. I, I doubt my book is going to be the avenue for a greater appreciation of uh, uh, Lehrman, but I think, uh, I hope at some point somebody will put together a, a DVD set that would feature uh, uh, Lehrman's comedies and maybe more specifically uh, Lehrman's comedies with Billy Ritchie, since uh, Billy Ritchie would be kind of a a, a a character that would tie the set together. Lehrman being a behind-the-scenes personality, you would see different films with uh, with different comedians in them. But I think Billy Ritchie is uh, uh, one people could focus on and uh, maybe create an appreciation, not only for Ritchie, but for, uh, for Lehrman and his uh, comedic contributions. I'll have a link for Thomas Reeder's book, as well as a couple of Lerman's films, in the show post at nitrateville.com. All right, before our next segment, let's let's put a record on. Good morning, Mr. That's the famous vaudeville act Gallagher and Sheehan from 1922. Al Sheehan was a Dutch comic, that is, a caricature of a Jewish immigrant, which he was. It's not a style of comedy that particularly works for us today. But Al Sheehan had some nephews who started out imitating him and did eventually achieve immortality, as the Marx Brothers. Robert Bader's book, Four of the Three Musketeers, chronicles the early years of the Marx Brothers and how long and frankly desperate careers in vaudeville as singers and comedians led them to create a new, more modern style of comedy that made them stars just as vaudeville was dying out. I asked him to start by explaining why the Marx Brothers first sought their fortune as kids at the bottom rungs of vaudeville in the 1890s. Well, for the Marx Brothers, when they were young men, teenagers even, their options for what they were going to do with their lives weren't very good. They were out of school early, mostly to work, or in some cases just be juvenile delinquents running around the streets of New York. Their uncle Al Sheen was a very successful vaudeville performer, and his sister was their mother, who said, hey, I got a lot of these guys around my house, and they can all do this. And... She just had this dream of making her kids into vaudevillians, which was not an uncommon time. At the height of vaudeville, there were about 40,000 people making their living as 
billions. Most of them weren't stars. They were just, you know, any act you could think of. I mean, they're a vaudeville act where a guy comes on stage and plays a rake in a broom. You know, there were just people <laughs> making up stuff. Or Gus Visser and his singing duck. Yeah, Gus Visser and his singing duck is one of my favorite pieces of footage of all time. And, um, you know, I did a documentary on the history of sound movies, and I used that clip quite well. But, it, you know, there were a lot of acts like that. Um, you know, the Marx Brothers, at least in the Groucho's case when he started, he actually was a good singer. He had potential, and he started to succeed. Now, Minnie, their mother, saw this and said, hey, I'll just hitch a couple of the other boys to his wagon. What she effectively did was she kept him in the lowest rungs of Small Pine Vaudeville a few more years than he needed to be. He was on his way. He was going to be a star. And then she adds Gummo, and then she adds Harpo, and he's in an act where his brothers aren't that good, and he's saving grace of the act. But he was a, what they would call now a team player. He was really involved in this as a family business, and he really did suffer longer than he should have in the worst parts of vaudeville because of his brothers. But they caught up, and they got good, and they then became stars together. Lifestyle, you know, at the lowest level of vaudeville was terrible. So these guys were living in really cheap boarding houses, practically living and sleeping on trains all the time. And it wasn't a very lucrative job, but it was much better than their other options. So, you know, as the three Nightingales, they might have been paid 65 bucks a week, and they'd have to cover their trains and their boarding houses and things like that and their meals. But if they were working in a factory in New York City, they'd have made about three bucks a week each. So, in that sense, to them, vaudeville was a very lucrative job. Well, and part of what the book is about is this slow process of them figuring out through trial and error what would actually be any good to sit through on stage. Well, you know, the thing about small-time vaudeville is it really went all over the country, and I really mean all over the country. As the railroads connected the United States from coast to coast gradually, the first things would happen when a city got a railroad depot is they'd build a general store, a theater, get a post office, probably a pool room, a whorehouse, all the things that a small town needed. And that's how vaudeville came around the country. So there was a need for a lot of acts. People in small towns weren't expecting Al Jolson to pop up every week. So you got what you got, and it created a lot of opportunity, and the acts that moved forward were the ones that developed and got good, which in the case of the Marx Brothers happened. So being in that small-time circuit of little crappy towns where there wasn't much going on in terms of entertainment, that was their opportunity to really develop and shine and move into the bigger cities and the better circuits. But, you know, people in those towns didn't really have a high level of expectation. It was a night of entertainment. So the Marx Brothers came out of that world, were very successful in radio and movies, and then had like a rebirth with television. This television was essentially vaudeville. Let's talk about what their act was. You suggest that at one point, Groucho was probably a female impersonator. He, he absolutely 100% was. Okay. Um, what's funny about that is you know, he always talked about answering a classified ad. And I found that ad. It took years of <laughs> going through newspaper microfilms of the New York Morning World, but I did find the ad. Now, he was probably so excited to get the job, he didn't really care, but if he had done a little bit of research, and I don't know how he could have in 1905, but if he would have read Variety, you know, even going back like six weeks, he would have read that this was a female impersonator act, and he did make his debut on stage in drag. Uh, you know, he would 
leave that part of the story out for many years when he wrote about it and talked about it. But the truth is, the Leroy Trio was a female impersonator act. And Leroy goes on to quite a surprising outcome, at least being a trunk murder is surprising even by the often sketchy standards of vaudeville. Yeah, I have to tell you, doing my research, that was one of the great, well, there were several great shocks and surprises along the way, but that one was almost like that needs to be another book. <laughs> there was so much there. Yeah, I put as much of the book in the book as was needed, but what a great thing to find. And, you know, spoiler alert for people who haven't read the book who might pick it up, let's just say that Groucho's first show business employer gets a lot of newspaper coverage for something other than being a female impersonator in vaudeville. <laughs> So initially, they're the Three Nightingales and the Four Nightingales. What was that act? Well, any young early vaudeville singing act at that time would typically come on stage, do it between 8 and 12 minutes, uh, and managers' reports describing the act with the timings and stuff do exist at the uh, University of Iowa. They have the Keith Albee Vaudeville Collection, so you could read managers' reports. They would do three or four songs, and young Julius would do a little German dialect uh, comedy, you know, ripping off his Uncle Al's very popular act. And they started off as the Three Nightingales with a female singer named Mabel O'Donnell. And in later recollections, Groucho always said that she was awful and she was cross-eyed and she couldn't sing on key and all terrible things about her. But that appears not to necessarily be true. What happens is she gets some pretty good reviews and occasionally gets singled out, and I think uh, young Julius was pretty jealous and might have even been smitten with her. <laughs> Harpo starts writing about her in Harpo Speaks, saying she was a cross-eyed nymphomaniac who couldn't sing on key. There's no indication that Harpo ever even knew her, because he wasn't in the act yet. I'm sure he must have seen a performance or two, but they created a narrative about poor Mabel, and they replaced her with a guy named Lou Levy, who everybody said could sing, and then Harpo joins the act at that time, they become the Four Nightingales. They got pretty good reviews for the most part. They were fairly bad reviews, but mostly they did well, and they were a popular act, and they started to move up on the bill from being a low-level part of the bill to moving up to a headliner status. And an act like the Four Nightingales might have been on the low level in New York, but might have been the headliner in Akron, Ohio. So they were in that sort of middle ground of small-time vaudeville for a few years. But the act was generally very well received as the Four Nightingales, for sure. And that's Groucho, Harpo, Gummo, and Lou Levy. And then later, Lou Levy left, and a fellow named Manuel Frank took his place. And so comedy just starts to work its way into that act? Is that how they became the Marx Brothers? Yeah, the, uh, the notion that they were a straight singing act that didn't do any comedy came around because of Groucho's narrative, which is not accurate, that they became a comedy night comedy act overnight, like one day, which is not true. They were always doing a little bit of the German comedian act, because ethnic stereotypes in vaudeville were a big thing. And Groucho used to dress in a butcher boy costume in one of their big gags in the Four Nightingales, and you can even see some still photographs of this. He has a basket full of wieners, and he's distracted by one nightingale while he's talking to him. Another nightingale, Harpo, is stealing the wieners out of his basket. And this was high comedy in 1907, 1908. <laughs> so, you know, but they were doing the German butcher thing, and Groucho was singing German dialect songs like Schnitzelbank, which you can see a performance of Groucho in the 1950s doing Schnitzelbank on the Marx Brothers TV collection DVD set, which is a rare thing, because he very hardly ever performed those songs. So 
you could see a little bit of that. But the German dialect thing was a big, big part of the act going back to the Three Nightingales. And then there's the famous act. If we know anything about them in this period, it's that they had an act called Fun in High School, S-K-U-L-E. And another one that I hadn't heard of called Mr. Green's Reception. And by this point, I guess, they're really more of a comedy act with a little singing thrown in. Yeah, Fun in High School was the outgrowth of the, the act that followed the Four Night Yells. They did the six mascots for a little over a year. And the six mascots did more comedy in their act. And they started to do a schoolroom sketch as their act got a little bit longer. Maybe they're getting 15 to 20 minutes on a bill now. And the schoolroom sketch becomes almost like an alternate act that they can expand. Now, this is far from an original idea. There were about 100 schoolroom acts in Budville, and it was very popular. So in certain small towns where maybe they couldn't get Gus Edwards, the popular, famous school act, well, the six mascots will do their school act, and it'll be the best thing to ever hit Texarkana. You know, so that's <laughs> their line of thinking here. They'll provide these small towns with the school act they're not getting that's on the big stone. But theirs was pretty good. They made it something of their own, and they, of course, had a pretty good singing act. So they went from being a singing act that did a little comedy to a comedy act that did a little singing pretty much in the 1910-1911 period. In the beginning of 1911, they called the act the Three Marx Brothers and Company in Fun in High School with various spellings of school. There's also S-K-O-O-L on a lot of their buildings. Yeah, so the school act becomes the thing that really puts them over, and they get their first big breaks. They tour the West Coast on the Pantages circuit. They get to do some pretty big things now, and they gradually expand the company. And over the course of 19, the 1912-13 season, they start doing Mr. Green's reception for a really good reason. In the school act, Groucho played the teacher, and the other boys played the students. These are guys who are now in their 20s, and they're not looking like school children. <laughs> yeah. So the, the concept of Mr. Green's reception was that they would have a 10th anniversary reunion with the old school teacher. So they did that act as the 10 years later of the school act, but the following season, they did a double bill of Fun in High School and Mr. Green's reception. So they would do the schoolroom sketch as Act 1 and Mr. Green's reception as Act 2, and there was always a little element of the schoolroom sketch, even when they just did Mr. Green's reception. So it was sort of a natural outgrowth, but it was created by virtue of the fact that they were just too old to play school children. <laughs> the, the welcome back Cotter of their time. Yeah, exactly. And the main comic was the teacher. Let's talk about how they got booked, because that's a big subject I had no idea about. Basically, the Keith Albee circuit formed a monopoly on vaudeville, and the Marx Brothers were constantly trying to get around it. And eventually they got blacklisted, which is what drove them to Broadway. That's the most unknown aspect of their career from my perspective, and I really wanted to understand it because I did see in my early research that they weren't getting the kind of bookings they deserved when they deserved. And it took a lot of reading the trade papers from the period to understand the hierarchy, but the basic situation was this. The United Booking Office was this organization created by essentially being the illegal merger of the two biggest vaudeville circuits in the country, the Keith Albee Circuit east of the Mississippi and the Orpheum Circuit west of the Mississippi. This blanketed the entire country in what was known as big-time vaudeville. Small-time vaudeville existed as a small adjunct of it all over the country, but it was a lesser-paying situation. The theaters weren't as good and the rent wasn't as good. 
you had to kind of make your own way through booking several smaller circuits. So if you're, if you're hooked up with the United Booking Office and you've got Keith Albee and Orpheum on your side, you basically go at the beginning of the season and they tell you your route and you're booked for 42 weeks and you work all year and you don't worry about it. If you're not so lucky, like the Marx Brothers, you basically have to go find 10 circuits that'll give you like, you know, four or five weeks at a time to get your, your whole season booked. And sometimes it's split weeks. You play Monday through Wednesday in one city and Thursday through Saturday in another city, doubling your railroad expenses. So it's really a challenge to book yourself on small time vaudeville, but usually you do it in the hope that you'll build up to the big time and you'll get those breaks that come with the United Booking Office. The March Brothers made a terrible tactical error very early in their career, and they probably didn't know that they'd done it. But there was this thing called medium time vaudeville, which was an attempt to sort of go after the big guys by competing with them directly and booking similar acts. And Alexander Pantages was the guy that really was the most successful at this because he had a circuit that rivaled the big time. And the UBO basically blacklisted people who played for Pantages. And in 1911, the March Brothers' first big break was playing for Pantages. UBO immediately blacklisted them. So after they had this big success on the Pantages circuit, they're right back to small towns in the middle of nowhere, and they can't figure out why. They eventually, I'm sure, find out why. They play for Pantages again in 1913, and they're pretty much making their living on the small time. And they're doing some of this under the aegis of the UBO, because they're not militantly blacklisted. They're just not being given the advantages of the full booking. So there was a thing called the WVMA, the Western Vaudeville Managers Association, that booked them in a lot of UB, but in the lesser theaters. They were working very steadily and making money. There came a point where, especially west of Chicago, they were playing in theaters that competed directly with the Orpheum theaters. And the guy that ran the Orpheum circuit, Martin Beck, was the guy who did a lot of the blacklisting. He started to realize that these guys are making quite a bit of money and packing theaters that he didn't own. So when the March Brothers debuted in Home Again in 1914, their first really big vaudeville show, the UBO took a look at him and said, you know, I think we'll bring these guys back into the fold. They're just making too much money on their own, and that's not a good example to set for the other people who are blacklisting. So they basically didn't want to show blacklisted performers that they could make a living without the UBO. And the Marx Brothers got back in. They, of course, managed to screw it up again by taking an unsanctioned trip to England without the permission of the UBO, which their contract did require. The UBO contract required that if you were going to work during the summer, you would work for them, and if you were going to go play somewhere else overseas, you'd get their permission. Uh, they didn't bother to do that, and when they came back in the fall of 1922, they were once again blacklisted, and this time they weren't letting them back in. So that is what really led them to Broadway. Of course, the irony is that UBO had a stranglehold on something that was about to become history anyway. When Warner Brothers started making the experimental Vitaphone sound shorts, the United Booking Office banned the contracted performers from appearing in them because they thought they were going to destroy vaudeville. And that's why people like the Marx Brothers didn't do them. Uh, a lot of people refused to be involved in the Edison shorts. The best of vaudeville wouldn't be allowed to do those. And the problem and what really led to the demise of vaudeville was basically those sound pictures because these guys, rather than try to embrace it and book them and work with these guys, banned it and got overtaken by it 
it destroyed vaudeville. It was the first really stupid decision that Keith and Albie and Orpheum made. It totally, it ended up wiping them out. Huh. And their fear was, if I have this act under contract for a 42-week season and some other theater could be showing a film of them while well, I've got them here, it was something they could have controlled like they controlled everything else. If the Marvel is playing in Kansas City, don't let the film be playing anywhere in the West. You know, it was so simple. If they're on the Orpheum circuit, let the film play on the Keith circuit. Yeah. And then they could say, they'll be here live next month. You know, it was a stupid, stupid decision, and it led to their demise. So the Marx Brothers were blacklisted. And at that point, they found a patron who had the money, a coal mining magnate who wanted to get into showbiz. And they could put on a show without UBO being able to say anything about it. Yeah, that, the guy you're talking about was uh, James Bury. But the real story that gets James Bury into the thing is that the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia was about to go dark for the summer. And musical theater in like Philadelphia and Boston was doing gangbusters business. And these guys that own the theaters were thinking, maybe we shouldn't close for the summer. Let's just put in a review or something. So a producer, Joseph Gates, who was a pretty successful producer of Broadway and touring shows, is tasked with filling the Walnut Street Theater. And Bury is the main investor. He's putting money into this thing. And they build this review, not necessarily around the Marx Brothers at first. You know, they booked 100 acts to be in this reviewed it and they were going to pare it down they tried it out out of town in allentown pennsylvania before bringing it to philadelphia and the marx brothers are just one of many many acts in this thing and they were so good and very successful in it that eventually it became their show and by the time it became a hit in philadelphia nobody cared about anybody else in the show and the marx brothers really took over that show and bury and gates were co-producers of the show for quite a while the Marx Brothers were promised that they would get a shot at Broadway with this show because they agreed to work in it for a very low price. And they wanted to get what was due them because they made the show a hit. So they negotiated a raise along the way. But Bury was not interested in risking the successful touring show that had been going around the country by going to Broadway, where if you flop, you're, out, you're done, you're out of business. Your touring revenue is gone because you flopped on Broadway. You could make a living with a show going around the country and staying away from Broadway where you might get slaughtered by the critics. So Gates bought Bury out of the show and did bring him to Broadway. And as they say, the rest is history. So they had Alsatias and then the Coconuts, all of which have something of that review quality to them. I mean, it's surprising how little Marx Brothers there really is in the Coconuts, supposedly their first starring film. It really is a review in which they're just one element. You know, I think what people fail to recognize, and it's no fault of their own because they just don't know this history, but a Broadway musical like Coconuts in 1925 was two hours and 45 minutes long, and it had a lot more songs than you see in the film, and one of the other things that gets lost when they make it into a movie is they had a lot more Zeppo. Zeppo was a featured star in those Broadway musicals doing songs, singing duets with the romantic leads, you know, all sorts of things that get cut out of the films. And one of the things that marks for the on stage was work as a quartet. There were a lot of scenes with the four of them, which didn't lend themselves to being easily photographed because of the limitations of early technology in film, especially sound film. You see very few glimpses of the four of them doing something on stage, and it's usually not dialogue-driven because it was just hard to mic it. So you lost some of that in The Coconuts. There's that little piece of film from the Paramount promotional film, The House That Shadows Built, where you see the four of them doing the theatrical manager sketch, which was 
part of a thing called On the Mezzanine Floor in 1921. It was also in Alsatia's, and it was in their later vaudeville. That's a great example of the four of them doing a piece of stage business that they did probably a couple of thousand times. You lose that element of it, but yeah, your point is very well taken that Coconuts has a lot of, has nothing to do with the Marx Brothers, because it was a huge Broadway hit, and Paramount bought the rights to a Broadway hit musical to make it into a movie. You know, it wasn't just, oh, let's make the Marx Brothers show into a movie. It was, let's make that Broadway musical into a movie. By the time they got around to doing Animal Crackers, the Marx Brothers had become the biggest thing about that film and the reason people went to see that film. So Animal Crackers keeps more Marx Brothers and loses more music. I want to talk about how they evolved during this time. Reading your book, I saw two points that I think are really interesting. One is... They started out basically doing the ethnic stereotypes. Groucho was a German comic, Chico was an Italian comic, and so on. And then World War I comes along, and you can't be a German comic anymore. So Groucho has to become something else. Basically, a very American kind of absurdist, smart-aleck comedian. At the point where World War I was beginning, the United States obviously wasn't in it in 1914, but in 1918 they were. The first time that the Marx Brothers had to really make the switch away from the ethnic German stuff was when they play in Canada, because Canada was in World War I from the first day. The Lusitania being sunk was always the reason Groucho gave, but in truth, the Lusitania was a Canadian ship. Groucho couldn't do German dialect in Canada at the outset of the war. Gradually, the anti-German sentiment became very big in the United States, and they had a sort of slowly angle his character. He went from being completely German to being a Yiddish-Jewish comedian type, and finally they changed the character's name to Henry Jones, and he was just straight Anglo, no German, no Yiddish, nothing like that. And there were things going on in American vaudeville where stagehands would refuse to work if there was a German act on the bill. You know, they were just removing anything German from the act. It was sort of an interesting thing, because a couple of years later, Vaudeville went through this thing where when Prohibition came in, they removed anything that resembled drinking or any jokes about drunkenness. So Vaudeville had a very strict code, which at the outset of the Roaring Twenties is kind of ironic, because they're trying to make this clean family entertainment that's objectionable to no one, while the audience is filled with flappers and bootleggers and gamblers. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But if that hadn't happened, it's hard to imagine Groucho having a career. I mean, he had to find a way to evolve past being an Al Sheehan imitator, certainly by the late 20s, early 30s at the latest. Yeah, I think Groucho evolved past Al Sheen early, like maybe 1915, 16, 17 is a period where he really comes into his car. And the whole act is not really based on him being German. I mean, in Mr. Green's reception, he's playing the German school teacher, yes. But he's also doing the song stuff, and he's not doing everything German. It's just one character in the act. By the time they're doing something, say, like On the Mezzanine or um, you know, the 20th Century Review, which was another one of their later vaudeville shows, he's playing a straight American, okay. doing the groucher that we know in the movies, but he's always got a little something from the German dialect in his dossier, so to speak. He'll, he'll break out a German song here and there because he just likes doing them. I mean, he was doing German songs in the 70s on television. He just enjoyed it, and it was also a tribute to his uncle. I think it's fair to say that as a performer, 
Groucho surpassed Al Sheen at a pretty young age. And then the other one that's interesting is that Harpo, and admittedly we don't know how much of this is later legend, but Harpo decides not to compete for fast-talking comedies with his brothers and goes mute. Which I thought was interesting. It's very strikingly like Buster Keaton realizing that if he becomes a stone face and everybody else is crazy around him, the eyes will all go to him. Yeah, I think in Harpo's case, he was admittedly, by, by his own recollection, not much of a performer when he started. You know, bringing him into the Four Nightingales was basically a way to get him off the streets. He was just getting into trouble. He was not making a living. He was... Uh, pretty much a lost cause. So I think he was right to try and save him from that, and he, he learned from his brothers. So he was told early on when we're doing the Four Nightingales, don't actually sing, just move your lips when Groucho moves his lips. That's how bad he was. He picked up the harp and made himself into something of a vaudeville novelty, and that's what he became known for. There weren't a lot of harpists in vaudeville, and maybe he wasn't great in the beginning, but you'll find reviews of him from 1911 right after he started playing the harp on stage where he's getting four encores for his harp solos. Maybe it's because Champaign, Illinois never saw a harp before. Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, he's becoming something unique. The character is the Irish kid in the schoolroom act when he starts out, and he's just a troublemaker. They, you know, he's getting into trouble with the teacher. He's doing his lines. But his big, big moments are always from the harp and doing some sidekicks. This is not lost on him, and it's not lost on Al Sheen either, because Al Sheen wrote home again for the Marx Brothers, and the story goes that he wrote maybe two or three lines in the entire show for Harpo, and Harpo complained about it, and Sheen allegedly says, well, you didn't even read those lines well, so you might, might as well say nothing, and Harpo says, great, I'll say nothing. You know, that's the story, that's the legend, but by the time Home Again is really making its way around the country... Harpo doesn't have any more lines, and he's inventing bits of business, and he tells a story about grabbing a taxi horn somewhere and getting a huge laugh with it. He sort of develops his own thing, which in the beginning was miraculous and wonderful, and then he would complain about it later when they were writing a script. The writers would just put in, Harpo does something funny here, and he'd have to figure <laughs> out what it was. So the writers just stopped writing for him, so he was kind of on his own, but... He, he took that piece of territory and he made it his own and he made it something unique because he did realize it was going to be impossible for him to keep up with Groucho in terms of dialogue. Gummo had the exact same problem and less of a desire to be in show business. Gummo was a stutterer. He had the stammer that he couldn't beat and he would use the dictionary and memorize substitute words because he would get flustered on stage and Groucho would work with him on stage to help him get calm and do his lines. He couldn't wait to get out of show business. So rather than become a pantomime comedian, you couldn't have two of those in the act. Somebody had to feed Groucho his straight lines. Gummo sort of took one for the team and really worked at what he had to do. The person who suffered from that was Zeppo when he replaced Gummo. By that time, there was no room for anything except the guy who came in and did what Gummo did, which was struggle through the straight lines, sing a few songs, and dance a little. Zeppo had a lot more talent, and he never got to use it, which was why he was never a happy Marx brother. I think the evolution of the Marx brothers from the earliest days of vaudeville to the act we know from the great movies is a very slow one, but when we first see them on film, they're fully formed and completely evolved as the four Marx brothers. That was an unusual transition because they're pretty much in their early 40s at this point. 
and they have a 25-year stage career during which they've worked all this stuff out. We never see them getting bad reviews in vaudeville. We never see the act in its developmental stages. In fact, there's a lot of vaudeville material in their early movies, even in some of the later movies. When you see Animal Crackers, and Harpo does the bit with the silverware and the coffee pot, that comes from home again. When you see the biology lecture in Horse Feathers, that's basically fun in high school with older kids. There's a lot of that stuff, and that had been developed so carefully over the years that really by the time you see the film, it's a perfectly honed act, and they're just absolutely great at what they do. So in a sense, they don't have any early films where they're developing and they're not great. Like other comedy teams, you may see the early stuff and see they're developing. Not with the Marx Brothers. We get them fully formed. So the only way we could really understand the full evolution and the transition is basically to read about it in local vaudeville reviews from around the country, which, for better or worse, I spent many years doing, and that's why I have this big fat book about it now. But uh, I was fascinated by the evolution and the transition, and that's really what a lot of the book encompasses. Oh, Your Excellency, I must speak to you. I'll see you at the theater tonight. I'll hold your seat till you get there. After you get there, you're on your own. Hello? Hello, yes? No, he's not in yet. All right, well, goodbye. That was for you again. I wonder whatever became of me. I should have been back here a long time ago. Thanks to my guests, Lockie Heiss, Thomas Reeder, and Robert S. Bader, and to Robert Moulton. There will be lots of links to things that we talked about in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure not to miss a single episode. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And hey, why not join us to chat about old movies at nitrateville.com? Thanks. Thanks.